As the teen tycoon of rock, I'd like to hear them, and I'm sure you would too. Leave him alone, Miss Elsa. You bad luck to him. My name's crazy, honey. What's yours? Bernice! What's the boogeyman? Will you marry me? Did he leave you any money? Answer the second question first. Cult Movies Podcast. My name is Anthony King. This show is all about author and critic and historian Danny Perry and his cult movies books. What's going to happen is we're going to discuss one of the movies from book numero uno, and then we're going to offer up some pairing recommendations in the second part of the program. And back once again is my great friend, Rosalie Lewis. How are you, Rosalie? I am fantastic. Thanks, Anthony. Uh, very much looking forward to this one because it's a good movie Two, because you're a great person. I love, always love talking with you. Uh, so this is very exciting. What's, uh, anything new, anything exciting in your life? Just watching as many movies as I can before the weather gets too good outside for me to, you know, justify doing so, I guess. Right. Yeah. My, uh, Rowan, my five-year-old recently learned how to ride a two-wheel bike. So the training wheels were off and he is off and running. So every day, every, like whenever possible, we're outside, which is good because fresh air is great for us and sunshine and all this. Uh, but, you know, that cuts down on my lazy sit on my butt, watch movies time. Well, yeah. But yeah, I'm not I'm not complaining. It's time well spent. So um, that doesn't mean that I, I still don't make time to squeeze all those movies in though so uh speaking of rosalie why don't you go ahead and introduce what we're going to talk about this week absolutely so we are talking about the 1973 terrence malick debut film badlands starring martin sheen and sissy spacek and this is a movie that i first encountered i think it's probably been about 13 or 14 years ago um I had seen, you know, one other, I think one other Terrence Malick movie possibly before this one. And I remember a coworker of mine at the time, because I worked at a movie store back then, coworker saying, oh, if you like that, you've got to see Badlands. And I loved the name right away because I've been to the Badlands and they're beautiful. And then um, I also love young Martin Sheen and young Sissy Spacek, and I had not seen it. So yeah, watching this movie for the first time, not really knowing what to expect was, wow. I mean, it just bowled me over right away. And I'm sure we'll talk about the effect it had on you as well. But um, essentially, it's a loose retelling of a crime spree that actually took place where a young couple um, goes on the run and there's the original... Um, crime. It was a 19-year-old 
young man and a 15-year-old girl. And in this one, it's a 15-year-old girl and a 25-year-old man. So bigger age gap here, but that was really just to accommodate the fact that Sheen was a bit older when they shot the film. Um, but basically, it's based on the Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Puget uh, murders. And they killed, I think, 11 people. And I don't think there's quite as high of a body count in this movie. But the weird thing about watching this movie is, <laughs> yes, it's about a couple that's on the run from the law and they're killing people, but it's also a very like sweet movie at times. It's a beautiful movie, obviously, because it's, it's Malick. Like it looks gorgeous, lots of great nature shots. This was, I believe, one of, if not the first, Tak Fujimoto uh, cinematography that he has on his credits, as well as two other cinematographers, Brian po Probin and Stephen Larner. And yeah, this thing is gorgeous to look at. It goes along fairly quickly. I think it's just over an hour and a half. And um, very, very striking film that I immediately knew was going to become a favorite for me. So this was, I've only seen two Maliks. I've seen this one twice and I watched um, Heaven's, not Heaven's Gate. That's Michael Cimino. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's the other one with Richard Gere? Days of Heaven. Days of Heaven, yes. Um, so I watched that for the first time today. And okay. I still haven't seen that one. So that's on my list to catch up with. It, you know, it's really interesting. So I, I watched Badlands for the first time two years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was my first Malik, and uh, I didn't know, you know, what to expect, but I didn't know it was going to be so, oh, moody and sort of um, ethereal, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, reading reviews of it, like, you know, that's Malik's thing. And then, yeah. uh, of course, watching Days of Heaven today, I was like, oh, that is so his thing. Mm -hmm. So here's what um, I can only assume. And, and, you know, I've seen the clips and trailer for Tree of Life and um, uh, and the Thin Red Line. <coughs> Excuse me. And here's what I think Terrence Malik is all about. Vibes only. <laughs> yes which is like that's a very you know gen z thing like we're just looking for good vibes right it's vibes like a life yeah. of vibes and that's what you get with the terrence malick movie so while i liked badlands the first time i i watched it um it wasn't i was i was so kind of thrown off by um how patient it is with its dialogue mm -hmm. how um how much uh, Malik pays attention to the uh, ambient noises surrounding mm -hmm. his characters, right? Um, and and then like it's just it's so pretty, yeah. you know. It's uh, it's such a gritty story, and we'll talk about Starkweather and and uh, uh, Fuga here in a little bit. But like that's such a like terrifying gritty story, and and yeah. I was sort of expecting more of like a honeymoon killers mm -hmm. vibe uh but instead like it's really like almost peaceful um which then sort of uh juxtaposed against how cold and um and like just sort of dead inside both of these characters are sissy specific not quite as dead inside as sure. martin sheen's character but 
but um, certainly so, detached, right? Like absolutely, yeah. yeah. And so, like that juxtaposition uh, between sort of this this just kind of chill vibe of a movie with these like cold, cold hearted people uh, is really interesting. So the first time I watched it, like I said, I dug it, but really threw me off this time. I, I knew what I was expecting. Um, and, and you know, my bar was set a little low. Cause I was like, you know, I it was fine. Uh, yeah. of course I was completely blown away this time. I was just like going along with it, like just sort of vibing with, and I'm going to say vibe a lot in this episode. <laughs> I'm very, very sorry, but like sort of vibing with Malik, like what he's going for. And how about this debut, right? Strong, strong, strong. Like the, like it's gotta be a contender for one of the best debuts of a filmmaker. Uh, maybe not the greatest, but it's gotta be in the, you know, top 20. I would, I would yeah. say, I mean, it's, such I think a strong it's definitely effort. in the conversation for yeah. sure. Um, and the fact that he made this, so he went to the um, American Film Institute and he had, I think, done maybe one student film before this, right. but he made this, he started making this his second year at AFI. So he was still technically a film student when he was putting this together and he and his producer, you know, financed it largely themselves. And then they found like do doctors, dentists, and farmers to help invest in it. Like they didn't, have a, a studio behind them at all, right? This was a fully independent production. And so it's a little bit of a miracle. I mean, every film is, but this one especially, that it came off as well as it did because they didn't have a, a large budget. I think it was maybe, I know it was less than a million, I think maybe seven or 800,000 altogether. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, uh, you know, it's impressive. Um, you know, it, it just speaks to sort of uh, Malik's artistic sensibility. Um, yeah. Hey, Hey, Rosalie. What do you think about watching a trailer for a second? And everybody else Ooh. can listen to the trailer. How about that? Let's, let's do it. Yeah, let's do this real quick. He was 25 years old. He combed his hair like James Dean. He was very fastidious. People who littered bothered him. She was 15. She took music lessons and could twirl a baton. I'm kid. I'm not keeping you from anything important, am I? No. She wasn't very popular at school. For a while, they lived together in a treehouse. In 1959, they murdered a lot of people. Of course, I had to keep all this a secret from my dad. He would have had a fit since Kit was 10 years older than me and came from the wrong side of the track, so-called. I don't want you to hang around anymore. I don't want to see you again. Understand? Then, sure enough, Dad found out I'd been running around behind his back. He was madder than I'd ever seen him. He made me take extra music lessons every day after school and wait there till he came to pick me up. He said that if the piano didn't keep me off the streets, maybe the clarinet would. My girl Holly and I decided to kill ourselves. Same way I did her dad. Nobody's coming out of this thing happy, especially not us. I can't deny we've had fun, though. We hid out in the wilderness down by a river in a grove of cottonwoods. It'd be in the flood season. We built our house in the trees. We planned a huge network of tunnels under the forest floor, and our first order of business every morning was to decide on a new password. 
He gave me lectures on how a gun works, how to take it apart and put it back together again in case I had to carry on without him. He said that if the devil came at me, I could shoot him with a gun. Hey. Listen to your parents and teachers. They got a line on most things, so don't treat them like enemies. There's always an outside chance you can learn something. Try to keep an open mind. Try to understand the viewpoints of others. Think I got them? I don't know. Well, I'm not going down there and look. Consider the minority opinion. But try to get along with the majority of opinion once it's accepted. Of course, Holly and I have had fun, even if it has been rushed. So far, we're doing fine. Hadn't got caught. Excuse the grammar. Great trailer. Great trailer. It, it is, man. These are like, and not necessarily uh, um, a sissy SpaceX character, but... Martin Sheen's character is so scary, so volatile in this movie, but he's so, Martin Sheen, the actor, is so charismatic, and you're just like, I kind of like him. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the character and Martin Sheen are modeled after James Dean. Like, James Dean was mentioned explicitly in the film, and um, Martin Sheen said he just tried to channel that same energy, and I think he captures it, right? He's got that charisma, that movie star charm, even though most of what he says is pretty like banal. And um, he, he says at the beginning when he's talking to Sissy Spacek that he's a guy that has a lot to say, but there's quite a few times where it seems like he runs out of things to say. And yep. even what he does say is, I mean, you heard it in that voiceover, right? Like listen to your parents and your teachers and, you know, all this very like cliche stuff. Um, but when, when he does talk to people initially, he does seem to be able to make a connection with them pretty quickly. Yeah. It's uh, it, I just watched the, the new centurions with, you know, Stacy Keach and George C. Scott and uh, uh, George C. Scott's character. in that is like this veteran LAPD cop and he he's training Keach and he's driving around, like giving him these like, you know, one liner pieces of, of advice and he calls him like the you know the laws of of kaminsky or whatever his character's name is uh but it's it's that sort of thing with with uh martin sheen's character and it you know it's i don't know like it he just <clears throat> he's obviously mentally disturbed this character yeah. of kit Crothers. uh but you can you know you can see how he gets sissy spacek her character is Holly into his web, right? Catches her right. In, in his web. Uh, before we go any further, let me read um, a little bit from Danny here. Another great essay. Short. Like this has got to be one of the shorter ones because it's his, I sent it to you. It's usually his mm-hmm. essays are like four to five pages long. And this one was only what, like three pages, two and a half pages. Yeah. So, two and a half pages. And part of that was just the like synopsis. synopsis right. Exactly. So, Um, I I pulled a couple uh, paragraphs here, though, that I really liked. He says, there is much in Badlands that impresses me greatly. Sissy Spacek, as always, is splendid. 
As in Days of Heaven, Malik pays wonderful attention not only to the plants and trees of the landscape, but to nature's sounds, like the swirling breezes and even the chirping crickets. He's the only director besides Nicholas Rogue who understands that insects are a dominant force in most environments. The visuals are extraordinary. The enormous sky and the large full moon and red clouds that fill it. Indoor settings lit by the sun filtering through the windows. Great gobs of dust sweeping across the barren land at twilight. Malik even gives the desolate badlands a beautiful ethereal quality that is something to behold. And then here's the part that threw Rosalie and I off. We were not expecting this from Danny. He goes on, he says, but I have strong reservations about Badlands. I find it a self-consciously artistic film that panders to an intellectual art house audience. My major complaint is the same one I have with Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter, which I haven't seen. Uh, the director treats his characters with condescension, indicating a belief that their inferior cultural and intellectual backgrounds prevent them from comprehending the sociological and political implications of what is happening in their lives as thoroughly as a sophisticated movie audience can. Films about a particular cultural type shouldn't be purposely over the head of that type. And I don't know if I agree or disagree. I'm still thinking about that. Have you landed one way or the other? Well, I do disagree because I I disagree with the premise that this is meant to condescend to those two characters or that it is like over their heads. Um, you know, I've I've heard that criticism before, right, of other filmmakers, people like to say that about the Coens or, you know, um, basically anytime somebody makes a movie about middle or rural America, I mean, Alexander Payne has also faced this kind of criticism, right? And I get it, right? You don't want to make a movie that's just characters or that is, you know, mocking the people without giving them a chance to be their whole selves. But I do feel like in this movie and in his other movies that are more narrative driven, which were fewer and fewer as he went along, Terrence Malick does actually capture what humanity there is to capture of these two. And I think we see that in, for example, the beautiful and beautifully shot scene where they're dancing in the car headlights to the Nat King Cole song. And um, that Kit comments like he wishes he could write a song like that. Or, you know, the the times when we hear the voiceover from Sissy Spacek talking about wondering kind of what the future will be like or what her future husband will look like. And so we get the sense that there's more to them than what we're just seeing. And I think that's why the voiceover can be helpful. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. I feel like that reading is different than mine for sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, maybe a bit of a counterpoint here. Here's what I, I was thinking about. I think, um, uh, not Charles Starkweather. What the hell? Kit is, we all know, like, you know, he's, he's insane, right? Yeah. Okay. He's insane. Uh, I think the the more interesting character is Holly, played by Sissy Spacek. Now, mm -hmm. here's 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 how I read Holly, and I could be completely off base here, but this is, you know, I think this speaks voice. Sissy Spacek's performance is mind blowing, yeah. so good, right? So here's how I read Holly: that she's this 15 year old girl who 
um, gets swept in uh, the romanticism of the moment. And she's this young teenage girl, and not just because she's a girl, young teenager Mm -hmm. who romanticizes everything. She has these big, wild dreams. And, you know, uh, you and I are both from the Midwest, like, and you live closer to a bigger city than I do. But, like, I always dream, like, I was convinced I was going to live in New York City uh, when when I grew up. And uh, for most people, that just, that just not in the cards like you know there's Mm -hmm. there's other plans whatever you want to believe like if there's some sort of you know plan laid out for you or like you make your own choices or whatever life gets in the way whatever it is um and so i'm sure holly had these ideas so so south dakota um i mean like i've been to the biggest cities in south dakota and they feel like the smallest cities in nebraska which is where right right so um, I'm sure she had, you know, sort of these these big ideas and these dreams. And so this this cute boy comes along and and like, you know, he's good with his words and like sweeps her up, um, catches her in her, in his web, maybe. And she just goes along for the ride. And the entire time until I think the final moments uh, when she wordlessly she's sitting on the airplane across from Kit in handcuffs and she wordlessly mm-hmm. kind of half smiles at him and then looks out the window and our final our final picture of the movie is the is the clouds like these gorgeous clouds and i think that's the instant she realizes oh shit this isn't a dream and i think either danny or someone else kind of uh, alludes to that in their in their reviewer essay and I, I feel like the entire film, Holly is sort of in the cloud. She's sort of this space cadet going, just going along because she's just a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I think any boy, you know, if say if the genders were reversed, I think it would play the same way because I'm thinking about when I was a 14, 15 year old boy, I was the same way. Like I had these big dreams and like I would flit off with anyone in an instance, you know, if, if somebody said, let's go do this, mm-hmm. uh, I would totally buy it. I would fall for it. So um, that's kind of how I read Holly. And um, it, but all that said, I hope that doesn't sound like I'm um, me. Anthony am not condescending towards her. I think that's just who she is as a as a kid. Right. I don't feel it's condescending because there are people like that. You know what I mean? There are teenagers like that, just like you said. And, you know, to say that that, that this depiction is condescending, it, it almost doesn't acknowledge that there, that there are people of this nature. So, yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, I don't know if Danny's thoughts have changed as he's seen the movie over the years. It's possible True. or maybe yeah. not. He's, of course, entitled to his opinion. We love you, Danny. Um, but I, yeah, I just had a slightly different take on it, I guess. Um, and rewatching it today, I was reminded of the fact that both Kit and Holly have trauma in their background, um, because we learned that Holly's mom passed away when she was young. And so she says in her first voiceover that her dad never really got adjusted to the little stranger in his house, which is her, right? So she doesn't have a great relationship with her dad to begin with, and she doesn't have that mother figure. 
and she seems a little bit of an odd duck. So I get the sense that maybe she doesn't have a ton of friends either. Right. And then Kit was in the Korean War. So, you know, I'm sure that also kind of fucked him up, if nothing else. And I'm not saying everybody that comes back from the war becomes a serial killer or anything, but um, it could certainly explain his detachment from the whole killing process. So I think both of them have some arrested development things going on and, you know, they do find that common ground. They do find, hey, here's a person that will listen to me and that will accept me for who I am without any questions asked. And, you know, that's good enough for me. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. They're both sort of, um, for lack of a better term, sort of stunted in their maturity Mm -hmm. uh, because of this past trauma. And what's really cool is that here in 2023, we're getting more and more aware and putting words to um, things that happened in our past, like the word trauma, right? People are comfortable talking, using the word trauma now and relating that to things that have deeply affected us in our past lives. Whereas back then, you know, I, I don't know if Malik was thinking like if he was, if he had the, the word trauma, you know, front center in his, his mind, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, I don't know. But I think, What's interesting is that um, the first song that we hear, and it plays over and over, is that Carl Orff composition, uh, Gossenauer, you know, the kind of the marimba uh, duet. And it's very childlike. It's very playful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've heard it in in several other movies, which are, I guess this was probably the first one that it it showed Mm -hmm. up in. Um, but then like you have it in other like lovers on the run, like true romance, it's in true romance, you know? So, you know, but it sort of indicates that I think that song naturally sounds like something, uh, that you would relate to children. And so we have this, this literal child, 15 year old girl, and then this 25 year old young man who, like you said, is back from the war obviously contending with with some sort of PTSD, another word that, you know, we never used back then, right? Um, And so heavy, heavy things have happened in their lives that their maturity has either uh, stopped momentarily or really slowed down. And so you have this song that sort of mirrors. And what's so funny, like the images at the beginning are so pretty the the garbage truck going through this sort of idyllic midwestern suburban neighborhood you know with the green trees and like it's very pretty um and then you know him just like the most perfect shot of the the title screen of him coming onto camera slowly walking towards her as she's doing her little baton twirling in the front yard and it's just so pretty and you have this really cool playful song by carl orff that is like oh this is this is like a sort of a theme song for a, a almost like it's going to be a coming of age story yeah for 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 some kids or you know teenagers and i mean in a way badlands i, I suppose you could say is is this really deranged fucked up coming of age story <laughs> it is uh but i love how malik uh, uses that reintroduces that song Gossenauer, you know, at key moments uh, in the film. And each time it just fits perfectly. It's not shoehorned in. It was like, it was like uh, the song was composed for that moment 
or that moment on screen he composed those shots for that song you know it just marries so well every time that song shows up yeah the music in this film is something else i mean i saw and i can't remember so i wish i could but i would source it but uh somebody said that this could be argued as like the best composition or the best comparison or the best soundtrack of like both you know the diegetic music the score the you know pop songs that are in there i mean it's it's like goodfellas level soundtracking yes, and yeah. song selection and um that mickey and sylvia song that plays in the woods <sighs> love is strange is also perfect <laughs> it suits them so well and it's so funny that you mentioned like it kind of feels like a, a demented coming of age movie i saw that somebody on youtube had cut a trailer of if Badlands were a chick flick, <laughs> they made it look like a romance. And it it kind of works that way too. Um, obviously, if you watched the movie, you would be deeply disappointed if that's what you were expecting. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it definitely can work on that level. And I think that that's the level that Kit and Holly see themselves as, at least initially, is like, oh, we're just like these young lovers and you know, we want to spend time together and the grown-ups won't let us, so we're just going to do our own thing. And it clearly becomes something, you know, much darker as it goes on, but that's how they still perceive it even after the first few murders have happened. So <laughs> that's and, and that's like the really kind of horror aspect of this movie. It's like they really don't realize the implications. Like her dad is not coming back and they treat it uh, like you know, we just sort of put him in the corner right. for now. No, he's fucking dead. Like, you murdered exactly. him. He's and... down in the basement, and Kit has dra dragged the body down to the basement, and he comes upstairs with something in his hand, and he's like, found a toaster. <laughs> like, they have no gravity of what is going on it's at all. So, okay, so uh, we're here. Uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back a, a little bit in a second here. But, okay, so he grabs, like, the shit that he takes from people is the most random stuff so like the toaster in the trailer we see him he has the lamp yep from kit's house or from uh holly's house uh he takes the trophy from the rich dude and the maid yeah. um and, and like that just sort of why it like maybe it's some sort of material he thinks he's like you know he's uh he's being a grown-up by possessing things but they're like the most random things. Right. Well, the first time we see this play out, he clearly likes to have some sort of material object to commemorate things because after he and Holly, you know, have sex for the first time and we see the aftermath of Holly being like, and that's all there is to it. I'm glad <laughs> that's over. But he has this other perception of it. He's like, I'm going to take this rock to commemorate this oh, day. Yeah. And it's this big, heavy rock. And then two steps in, he's like, actually, I'm going to get a smaller one. <laughs> and he puts the other one back. But it's, you know, and at the end, when he, right before he gets captured, he builds a little monument of rocks in the road, too, by his car. So yep. he has this thing where he needs to, like, somehow have a concrete symbol of, of whatever experience he's having. It's not enough that he's living it. Yeah, it's so interesting. So, like, we have Holly, Sissy Spacex, sort of narrating the whole movie and the narration again, like I, the credits rolled on this today and I was like, um, almost a perfect movie. And as we talk about it, I'm like, 
absolutely a perfect movie, not almost. It's like, because everything just fits just so like, it's so meticulously layered. And like, you can, you can, you can tell that Malik like was like a, was like a scientist in a, in a lab, like making sure everything fits just right. And it, my gosh, it does. But okay. So the narration from Holly uh, is, it's as if she's reading from her journal or her diary. Mm -hmm. Right. And these are like very mature sounding things that she's saying, like, like an adult is narrating, like just reading a story. And, uh, I don't think that's, I, I think that's on purpose because here we have these two sides of, of this girl, Holly, who, uh, is because her, she lost her mother at such a uh, young age and her dad is sort of detached already and he's working a lot. So maybe she's sort of taking care of the house. So she has assumed responsibilities and, and in that way probably has had to grow up a lot faster. Right. And so she's in that way, she's more mature. Yet she has this little child that that never she, she has these these two beings inside of her that that maybe are supposed to grow together and then they merge as we you know come into adulthood. But instead, she had her two like she has one that grew uh, to be able to sort of take on the responsibilities of taking care of a house and her dad and everything. But then she has her little inner child that never grew up. And mm-hmm. that's what sort of taking over saying you know let's run away with this boy because it could be fun uh but then we hear this narration from her which is her mature self that is you know uh, you know i can imagine that voice in her head is in the back like buried somewhere but screaming at her what are you doing wake up don't this is no don't do that what are you doing you know better than this (coughs) and so it's her character is endlessly fascinating. That's why, you know, I say Kit, you know, I I think the insanity portion, we could pick that apart and talk about that a lot. Uh, and and his uh, Martin Sheen's performance is so great. But I think Sissy Spacek, her performance and the character of Holly is the more fascinating one. Yeah, she is really amazing. I don't think this film exists. Well, it doesn't exist without her, but it also isn't this good without that voiceover. And I know that, you know, voiceover narration can sometimes be a crutch for, you know, people who can't come up with a more interesting or creative way in the script to tell you the information you need as an audience. But in this, it really is awesome how well it contrasts with what we see on the screen, because some of what she describes, if you only had the voiceover, it's like she's an unreliable narrator to a certain extent, right? Because some of it, she's describing how romantic it is, but then you see them together and they don't have that much to say to each other. And she gets in the car and she's like, you know, I'm tired. And he's like, yeah, you look tired. And it's just like, okay, this is the big romance in your life that you had to kill your dad over. Like, all right. And one of the things that she says in, I think it's when they're driving through North Dakota before they get to Montana, it's literally like flat and there's nothing to see for miles. And she's like, Kit told me to look out the window and take in all the beautiful scenery. And I did. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what scenery, right? right? So I love the kind of contrast between what we're seeing and what we're hearing. And I think that's very intentional on Malik's part. Yeah. It, you know, she, 
their relationship sort of mirrors their surroundings. And yes, you, like you said, you've been there. I've been there. The Badlands are really gorgeous. It is very beautiful up there. Um, but it is barren, like, you know, especially if you get into like the uh, the really rocky stuff where it's really beautiful but like nothing can grow there right that yeah. really heavy clay right the red the red yep. right the red clay um nothing can grow there and so you know that that being their relationship they're driving through this barren landscape um that mirrors their relationship that has absolutely no future um and and, and then another thing uh, that sort of uh I, i'd like to think supports my theory about her living in this dream this dreamlike state for the entire movie is when they hear the helicopter coming at the end mm. he's like come on we got to go and she's like no i don't want to like she's like okay i'm done playing now i just right. want to go home right and like she she starts to wake up there um but look around like it's like the flattest, you know, it reminds me of that moment in Dumb and Dumber where they take the wrong exit and then yes. Lloyd wakes up or uh, uh, Harry wakes up and he's like, that John Denver was full of shit. The Rocky <laughs> Mountains, you know, like, yes. because uh, uh, people, I live here. I live in Nebraska. It, it's like, it's flat, 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 fucking flat everywhere. Yeah. Um, And like... Uh, you go to South Dakota for the scenery. Okay. So like right, what you see in right. Badlands, that's like, Ooh, pretty. You don't come yeah. like Nebraska. That's why, that's why stark weather was like, fuck this. This place sucks. We're going exactly. to South Something Dakota. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, the, and I, I love how the title Badlands. Um, and you know, I'll ask you this too, because it, it, it was sort of misleading for me. I was expecting this sort Ooh. of gritty, you know, lovers on the run, uh, very, you know, violent. Uh, we see lots of blood type of thing. Um, uh, and so like, it's, it's literally where they're going. They're in the badlands of South Dakota, which I, I think it's really clever. It is. Yeah. They, there's violence on screen, but it isn't, um, it isn't overly dwelt upon. Like we see him shoot the father and we see him shoot a few other people, but it doesn't linger on what, you know, happened. I think the one that we see the longest is Cato and we just see him kind of grabbing his stomach and kind of sitting on the bed passing out or whatever. Um, but I think it's more just the matter of factness of it all. Um, and yeah. maybe that's one of the things that Malik was going for because you know, I, I'm sure you read up on the Starkweather case, but people were like celebrating those two. I mean, there were fan clubs for Charles Starkweather. Yeah. So it's pretty crazy that that happened. And I know Natural Born Killers was also inspired by that story and how the media circus just made them into celebrities. I think that's what these two want is to be celebrities, but they never quite achieve that level of fame that they're looking for. Yeah. So I had this note. Um... Uh, okay, so I both Holly and Kit are mentally disturbed. Uh, Kit, I, I have Kit as a paranoid schizophrenic because he, he right he like especially when after they've built their forts and stuff, yeah. um, like he's hearing shit in the wind, right? And it's like it's really eerie. The sound design, this again, everything about this movie is perfect. Yeah, uh, but the sound design is so gorgeous and it's very eerie and like he's hearing stuff. 
Um, so he's this, and, and he's always paranoid. He's always looking over his shoulder because, uh, you know, on way, one hand, he knows what he's doing is bad. So, he, you know, if, if he were to stand trial, you, you, he could go, he could be able to, you know, plead insanity, but he could also, he very well knows what he's doing. Um, so there's that. And then Holly, she's completely delusional. She's living, uh, in this dream. And then, uh, yet Kit is sane a lot of the time. And he's, so he's doing these things to sort of make a name for himself. Like you're saying, like he wants to be the celebrity. I don't, I don't know if Holly, again, I think she's just along for the ride. Kit is sane enough to realize that what he's doing is bad, but like the end, I think the end when he's captured is a complete tell because he's yeah. just like, okay, you got me. And then he, like, he's making friends with all the guys like, you know, great. you know, I, I hope things work out for you in the future. Like he's shaking hands right. with all these cops. He gives people like, his lighter, his comb. Right. His yeah. He's hand. like, who wants it? Everybody's like, yeah, me, 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 me. Right. It's like, so he, that's what he was going or. I don't know if that's what he was going for initially, but I think eventually he's like, yeah, I could play this out. I like this idea. Um, and so in that way, he's completely sane yet. He's also obviously completely insane um, because of all these things that he's hearing. We've seen, you know, as, as the, the third party here, uh, the audience were privy to see, to witness his insanity where all these cops and these reporters have no idea about that. They think, oh, he's just a, he's a celebrity, right? He's right. he's doing this to be, get his picture in the paper and his name on the radio and all this stuff. Yeah. There's two things that stood out to me um, about Kit on this rewatch. One, I'd forgotten what Holly says at the beginning about how she's not afraid to tell him what, that she threw out her sick fish because he has strange experiences too. And the two things she mentions are that when he goes to bed at night, he hears, it sounds like a seashell is being held up to his ear, yes. which goes along with what you're saying about him hearing the sounds in the forest. And the other thing is that he does his signature different every time so that nobody can copy it in case, you know, they try to steal his identity. So he's already got those almost like delusions of grandeur even before any of this stuff happens. And then I think the recording that he makes before they burn the house down is similar, right? He kind of wants that to get played. He wants something to be out there. It's a stalling tactic, but it's also a way for him to like start the legend. And then when, when they're at the rich guy's house, he records stuff into the dictaphone that we heard in the, the trailer. So he's constantly trying to become this folk hero. Um, and I think, you know, whether that was his original motivation or whether it's just an ancillary part of who he is, it's definitely there. Yeah, you know, the <laughs> the part, and I don't know if we're supposed to, the trailer plays it for a laugh in the movie. I don't think they play it for a laugh. But when he, he takes the teenage couple that, that come out to his old co-worker's place and like, hey, we're supposed to meet. No, no, no. Oh, you're with the people with the Studebaker. Come out here. We're going to put you in the cellar. And he closes mm -hmm. the door and like just blindly shoots two bullets into the hole and then in the movie, like it's very sort of eerie, and he turns around and says, "Do you think they're dead?" And she is like emotionless. She's like, "I don't know. Let's just go." Right. And, and he's like, "Well, I don't want to look." In the trailer, like it, I, I was snickering because it's like, 
that's funny. Like they play it for a laugh in the trailer and the movie, they don't. Um, but you know, it's stuff like that. Like who is this guy of kids? Right. Crazy. Yeah, it really is. He's, he has moments where he seems relatable and then other moments where you're like, Oh no, this guy is like out there. Um, <laughs> or as, I can't remember the exact word she uses, but as Holly describes to the the deaf maid and the the rich guy, sometimes Kit acts like something's on his bean or he's off his bean or something like that, <laughs> and that that really did sum it up. Like, yeah, I think you got something there. Uh, okay, so I love how these South Dakota residents sound like they're from the deep south of Texas. Sure. Uh, where, come on, we know. South South Dakota residents talk like this. You know, they have the northern accent. You hoser. It's not right. just Minnesota. I have family in Yankton, South Dakota. And, you know, they all take the boat out on the lake and, you know. Exactly. Hey, you know, so, yeah, they all talk. Like, so I, I, don't know, I, just, I thought that was funny. Yeah. I, at least they give Sissy Spacek the backstory that they came from Texas originally. Right. So she has an excuse. But I don't know. Kit, who knows where he came from originally. But, but everybody that, else in the movie, you're right. Yeah. So like, uh, I, I, and I, when I first watched this, I didn't know who he was, but Alan Vint shows up as one of the arresting deputies and Alan Vint, uh, and his brother, Jesse, you know, were great character actors. Jesse was in Bobby Joe and the outlaw with Marjo. And, uh, they were both in, um, uh, not Badham County, um, uh, Macon County line, Mm-hmm. Um, a great, my God, what a great movie. I recommend that to everybody. But so, uh, Alan Vint was also in, uh, break, was it breakaway or break? It's the Charles Bronson Breaking movie. Away? No, it's the Charles Bronson helicopter movie. Oh, okay. Break. Oh, breakout. Uh, where he, he has to break out Robert Duvall from this Mexican jail, but Alan Vint plays the helicopter pilot. Anyways, Back in 2001, I didn't know who Alan Vint was, and he shows up here. I'm like, fuck, yes, Alan Vint. But yeah, he's got this like <laughs> super, and like the Vint brothers were from the South, so like that's his accent. But like, sure. I was like, guys, come. <sighs> no, nobody really cares about that, but I, I just thought that was silly. Um, and then uh, um, the car chase. So this isn't like some sort of fancy, you know, car chase with a bunch of cool stunts and everything. Uh, and it's fairly quick. It's only a couple minutes long, but it's two really cool, like big Studebakers from the fifties. And I'm not a car guy, but I just know yeah. they're Studebakers because he said they're Studebakers in the movie. Um, and like they're driving through the fields, and like Danny says in his his essay, like kicking up the dust, and like this, so this much dust, and they're going so fast, and so like it, it's you know, it's almost like a, you know, like a. a quote unquote chemtrail, right? Like yeah. it's, it's a trail of dust and it's so cool looking. And it's again, Malik knew exactly what he was doing. Like he wants that look, uh, these very like, like, uh, you know, jet stream looking cars cutting through this very dry and dusty landscape, leaving this, this like straight trail of dust. And it's, it's, uh, it's cool. Cause the cars are cool, but more than that, it's, beautiful like it's a beautiful car chase just with you know everything sort of laid out there is really really pretty yeah it's a really cool scene and you know if you're only going to have one car chase in your movie this is a great one um and it also proves you don't have to do the french connection 
you know, in the middle of a city kind of car chase for it to be compelling. Exactly. Yeah, right. So here's what's interesting. Danny has uh, several of these sort of uh, lovers on the run or um, sort of bad, bad girl, bad guy, good girl, good guy relationships in his all three books. So we have uh, Pretty Poison, which he does a lot of comparative writing to in, in this essay. Uh, we have Gun Crazy, uh, The Honeymoon Killers, uh, Pandora's Box, maybe sure. a little bit, right? You and I talked about that. Yeah. Um, Body Heat, which will come up uh, in the next five seasons, uh, and Breathless, which will come up in the next five seasons. Yeah. So, you know, uh, this sort of story sort of lends itself to being a cult movie maybe because yeah. and, and we'll, i'm sure we'll get into it a little bit in our pairings here in a little bit but like uh with all those movies that <clears throat> that we've talked about so far i've had to like really mine for lovers on the run type of movies um and so i've i've gotten to talk about a lot of them because you know a lot of my pairings have been those types of movies Sure. Um, and I'm and we're gonna get to some more here in a little bit, but um uh my last note before we get to a couple reviews I want to read here. Uh did you see this? Warner Brothers uh released this, but they first booked it as a double with Blazing Saddles. Blazing Saddles! saddles. What <laughs> the fuck? I wonder why that flops. You, you know, we talk about double features on this podcast a lot of our friends have double feature type podcasts uh, like this is like lindsey wilkins is known for like the crazy like out of the box double features that this is like beyond lindsey wilkins blazing saddles and badlands get out of here yeah kind of different tones <laughs> like um doesn't yeah. even make sense ridiculous um, I do kind of now want to recreate that just for myself to, to see, see how, how it, it yeah. is. Yeah. Um, I'm, a, I'm assuming the Blazing Saddles was first and then Badlands, but I don't know the order. Yeah, gosh. Yeah. I, Either I would, way. I would have to. Well, yeah. Who a knows? weird night weird. at the movies. Really weird. Okay. Um, uh, Rosalie, can I read you a couple reviews here? trying to do Me that too. this season like uh find some other reviews so this uh movie closed out the 11th annual new york film festival in 1973 and so vincent canby wrote about it and here's a little bit uh what he has to say about badlands and that screening he says there are all sorts of fascinating displacements and distances in badlands which last week closed the 11th New York Film Festival, making an otherwise so-so festival, which was no better or worse than many others, memorable indeed, which is cool. Also of note, Mean Streets, Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets played that festival. Oh, wow. That year. Uh, Malik presents us with the spectacle, clear-eyed and mostly without any romantic notions, except for the ones... Uh, that Kit and Holly have about themselves of two desensitized people moving through a world that could be an extension of either a television series or one of the stories Holly reads in true romances. It's a place where there are no ultimate consequences where even death may not be final. 
Three cameramen are credited with the photography, all of it beautifully and simply done, without excess gestures. No, uh, nor is there anything excessive in the performances of Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek as the Runaways. Miss Spacek manages the rather grand feat of being simultaneously transparent and mysterious, sweet and heedlessly cruel. Sheen, which I disagree. Well, well, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Sheen, who does look like James Dean, has may what be the role of his career. It allows him, which is interesting because this is very early in his career. It well, is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and of course, Martin Sheen is it still going. It was before Apocalypse Now, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it allows him to recall the mannerisms of Dean the Fallen Hero within the frame of, of a character who aspires to the kind of fame and power made romantic by films. It's like seeing a life within a life instead of a movie within a movie. Badlands is hugely effective. A smash. So. Vincent Canby liked it. He's, you know, says effectively it saved that year's New York City or New York Film Festival for him, which is great. Um, and all in all, wrote, reviews were positive. Okay, now going back to uh, Miss Spacek manages rather, uh, he calls her sweet and heedlessly cruel. So I hesitated on that, but then I, I thought otherwise. So because, yes, she is sweet, obviously. Uh, heedlessly cruel there's only one instance and i already brought it up where i feel like she's not even necessarily cruel just sort of uh apathetic where he says do you think i got him after he shuts those teenagers in the cellar and she says i don't know let's just go um so i don't know if that's cruel it's very cold um but you know i don't know if i agree with heedlessly cruel so I kind of see where he's coming from. Um, for one, I do think her throwing her fish away, basically while it's still alive, just throws it out in the garden to flop around till it dies. That's pretty cruel in my opinion. True, yes. Um, she has, some of the things that she says to Kit are a little, um, I mean, yes, he deserves whatever is coming at him, but she she is a little bit mean to him at times um and she even says like in one of the voiceovers that some of the time she would love to see him like drown in the river <laughs> so you know i think there is a little bit of a streak in her that's a little bit sadistic which and the other thing and again you could say this is just like her casually accepting the circumstances but she is so like friendly with the young couple that he eventually does try to kill in the storm cellar. Yeah. And she very well has to know what's going to happen to them. True. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, she's more of a participant than a hostage. I will say that. And I yeah. think for that, you could potentially say it's cruelty. Sure. Okay. Yes. I, I, I do agree with that. Um, and then a, a quick thing here from variety from their 1973 review Written, produced, and directed by Terrence Malick, Pick is his first feature, and it's an impressive debut. The killer lead, played with cunning and charm by Martin Sheen, is a perverse Horatio Alger, a culturally deprived American boy weaned on James Dean Picks who works at his rebel image and achieves success, i.e. notoriety, uh, capture, fame, and death. His girl, Sissy Spacek, is one of those mid-teen catatonics whose life is defined <laughs> in terms 
in terms of Hollywood gossip and visions of white knights. Together, they litter their escape route with the dead. Uh, really good review. I, I disagree with I a few parts, that. but really great review. One of those catatonic teens. <laughs> and I mean, uh, yes, I agree with that. Because, you know, that's, I think that's a little um, harsher than, than my saying, as eh, she's in this dreamlike state, but mm-hmm. which is catatonic, let's be honest. So she, she realizes, and then she wakes up at the end. I don't want to play anymore. She just walks yeah. toward the cop. And again, coldly, right? He at the end has shot one of those cops. And um, presumably the guy's not dead. The guy from from one of the guys from the helicopter because they carry him off in the stretcher on the side kind of mash style. Right. But she's just like, I don't want to play anymore. He takes off and she just walks out casually, hands up. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. I'm not going to do anything. And the and the pilot is like checking on his partner and she's like standing there almost just reading Sissy SpaceX body language as can we go like, let's get on with it. Like, and she's not, but the character's almost like this spoiled little rich girl mm-hmm. who uh, knows that she's, you know, she's done playing um, cowboys and Indians and mm-hmm. um, she knows she's not going to get in trouble. So can we just wrap this up um, yeah. again? She's not uh, a spoiled little rich girl because, you know, she kind of had to fend for herself as this this child. Um, but that's the way she plays it, which, you know, as a, <laughs> what they say as a catatonic, catatonic. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> um, so true. Yeah. So Rosalie, perfect. any final thoughts on Badlands? So I was curious watching it this time and I want your take. Yes. Do you think Kit has killed before or is this the first time? I assume he has because it just comes so easy to him. Like there was no need to kill her dad. It's not like her dad was going for a gun. You know, Mm -hmm. I assume that family didn't even have a gun in their house. He was just walking away. Like I'm just, I'm I'm, going to call the cops and we're going to let them handle this. And Kit was just, pop pop like two quick shots like it's nothing and then the way he's just like okay come on let's go and then like fucking douses the house and gasly he's like takes a lamp and a toaster and says let's let's vamoose here chicky yeah yeah so i i assume he has killed what about you i also think he has although he doesn't seem that great at covering up his crimes so part of me wonders if he did kill before, like, you know, kind of how he got away with it, maybe because he didn't have another person in tow. Um, but yeah, I definitely think if nothing else, he's definitely killed during the war and probably did more than he needed to. Oh shit. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause so he and um, it's Ramon Beery's uh, Cato they're the trash guys at the beginning and uh, that sort of our introduction to Martin Sheen, he jumps off the truck and goes over to the dead dog. And he's like, give you a dollar. He eats his collie. Um, <laughs> and which, the guy's and, like, I won't eat it for a dollar. Also, I don't think. That's right? Yeah. <laughs> Again, like it kind of kicks off with this 
little laugh, right? Yeah. yeah, we're looking at this dead dog, and this guy's like, I'll give you a dollar to eat it. And you're like, what the fuck? And then his his friend's like, uh, no, and it's not a collie. And it's like, oh, that's funny. Yeah. So, so again, sort of like subverting our expectations almost. Right. And then uh, there is some other dog. I'm not going to say cruelty because it's very God, quick. Yes. But, um, the dad. So fuck Warren Oates in this movie, too. Holy shit, like- dude. I mean, I actually was like, I kind of forgot that that had happened. And then he, when he finds out that, that Holly is seeing Kit, he shoots her dog. Dude. What the fuck? Like, as... God did nothing. Yeah, as punishment. And uh, listen, we love Warren Oates on this show. Um, he is the patron saint of cult movies uh, podcast. But my God, like, and he, and up until that point, he's not a bad guy. Like, you sure. know, he's he suffered trauma as well like he lost his wife they were supposed to grow old together right they were supposed to raise their daughter together um and now he's just like i don't know how to do this without her and kind of just gets lost in his work painting his signs which by the way are really cool like hand painted signs really the the one that he's doing the big one when he's talking to kit the billboard is so cool um i also realized warren oates isn't really painting that i just it's really cool folks yeah. Um, and so you're like, yeah, I, I get this guy. Like, I, I understand. Like, I kind of feel for him. And, and Warren Oates is the perfect actor to play that character because Warren Oates, like, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, like uh, Joe um, uh, Maniac, Joe's... Rogan? No. <laughs> <laughs> you said he, Maniac. He is a I Maniac. That's true. Um, uh, Spinell. Like yes. he and Warren Oates have this like inherent sadness in their eyes. And like, so Warren Oates is the perfect guy to play this character, but then he fucking shoots her dog for no reason. I lost all sympathy at that point. Yeah. Sorry, buddy. Yep. I'm with you. Yeah. 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 Good. Uh, um, yeah. Did you see a uh, little Charlie Sheen and uh, Emilio in the no. movie? No. You wouldn't be able to recognize them. I only noticed it because I saw the trivia beforehand. But um, they are standing in the street light when I think I think it's when Sissy SpaceX like walks up the stairs and looks out the window and she's waiting for Kit to come back while he's out there recording his little doomsday message. Yeah, they're standing under the street light. So it's oh two little kids, God. two little boys. Oh wow. Yeah. Pretty Very, cool. Yeah, that is really cool. So how old was Martin Sheen when they were making this? Let's see. He was, well, when he first got cast, he was 31. Okay. And he talked about in one of the making of features I watched um, that he was really excited about the script, but he told Terrence that he felt like he would ruin the movie because he's too old. Too old, yeah. And Terrence was like, don't worry about it. I'm just going to make the character 25. So he still looks young to me. Like he doesn't look 31, but. I, you know, uh, yeah, I totally buy really it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, uh, shit, look at him. I mean, he's aged, but he look at him now. Yeah, like, he still now, looks good, still right? Looks good, for sure. Um, all right, well, let's let's move on here, Rosalie, to the second part of our program, uh, where we're gonna recommend some movies that could pair with this. Um, I had a last minute audible that I called today. All right, love um, it. And uh, yeah, so I'm sure we're going to recommend some more Lovers on the Run. At least I'm going to recommend one more. Uh, but I am curious 
about where we're going here. Why don't you kick it off with your first one? All right. So my first one, it is Lovers on the Run. Had to do at least one. Um, and that is, for me, the one that kind of started the template for real, and that is They Live by Night. I guess you heard over the radio. I heard. Martita? And Shikama. What happened to him? He was killed last night, breaking into a liquor store. Say it runs in threes. Oh, honey, I didn't mean to get you mixed up in this. I can take care of myself. Anyway, they can't pin nothing on you, nothing in this world. When did you start thinking about me? You sure didn't think about me when you were gone. Don't you touch me. It was me or them, and you took them, didn't you? I don't like to talk about them, boys. Where are you going? What's it to you? I told you not to touch me. Don't leave this place all like this. Look, if anybody leaves, it's me. I'm not staying. I'll go outside for a while. If nothing will do you but go and you take the car. You know where the money is. 1948, it's yeah. Nicholas Ray. It's film noir. You've got Kathy O'Donnell and Harley Granger as two young lovers who meet when one of them is hiding out from the cops and she just escapes with him in the middle of the night and you know they end up getting married and try to make it work at least in this one um a little bit less carnage <laughs> but it's still one of those things where they're bank robbers or i should say um farley granger's character is a bank robber in this and he had already served a prison sentence um for a crime he didn't commit in this movie and then he escapes from prison and they, you know, rob another bank. Um, and so he's trying to actually use the money from the bank robbery to hire a lawyer and exonerate himself. But um, it doesn't quite work out that way, of course, right? So the two um, go to this gorgeous little mountain resort. They stay in a cabin. At first, it's very honeymoonish. And then, of course, you know, they need money again. So um there's you know more crime that has to be committed and things just get a little bit more complicated from there but i love this movie it's so it is romantic i think i saw that you had this on a list of secret christmas movies so i think you've seen it yep. um but yeah it's definitely a movie that you're rooting for them even though they're on the wrong side of the law and you know Back in the 40s, that wasn't always uh, something that the censors appreciated. Yeah. So being able to get away with it in this movie, you know, I think they did a, a great job. And I love the performances. And Kathy O'Donnell is wonderful as Keechee. Uh, I love the name Keechee. And then Farley Granger, if I didn't already like him, his character's name is Bowie. So, I mean, I kind of have to. <laughs> um, but yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's a really good movie. And if you haven't seen it, very, very well worth your time. Um, I think, you know, the main DNA I see shared here, obviously, is the lovers on the run. But, you know, I would be curious to know if Malik watched this movie and took any inspiration from it, because I do think there's certain things like the picturesque little cabin and, you know, some of the early romantic stuff that goes on. And then it devolves into them arguing a little bit and things not necessarily being as romantic. And it just seems like she in particular feels more and more up against the wall and he's a little bit uh more hesitant to acknowledge their situation it seems like yeah so i see some common ground there 
Yeah, I agree. So there's, uh, there are two. So real quick, I do have, I have this on five lists. I'm a big letterbox list maker. So if anybody <laughs> wants to check that out, um, so it's now on the cult movies podcast, official movie list. It's, it is a sneaky Christmas movie, meaning there's some scene about Christmas or a Christmas tree appears in it. Uh, Danny it's in, uh, guide for the film from net fanatic. I have a road movies, list and uh jean-luc godard writes about it in godard on godard so oh, cool i'd love to read that essay uh yeah god what a gorgeous movie so uh when i thought about badlands i thought about two movies and badlands is it's such a unique movie it you know it it it, it could very well i mean it was obviously uh kind of taken from the headlines type of movie right the Starkweather case uh but there were two movies that came to mind this they live by night and my first pairing which is the fritz lang movie you only live once yeah well mr taylor um, my, my wife here wants to tell you something go ahead hester and tell him well tell him yourself well, Mr. Taylor, you see, this this room was reserved for some folks from Battleboro. Oh. Convicts and their wives ain't welcome in this tavern. So we're asking you, in a nice way, to leave at once. Okay. Well, good night. Good night. Good night. Did you hear what they said? Oh, darling, you promised you wouldn't let things like this bother you. I'm thinking of you. I told you something like this had happened. What do we care about these people? What do we care about anybody as long as we... Yes. Yes, we're leaving just as soon as we're packed. to think I spent three long years looking for this place. Ooh, haven't seen. Okay, so I feel like they live by night, and I think that it, it, it's just Nicholas Ray. Like, Nicholas Ray makes such beautiful movies, and, like, yes. I get lost in their beauty and the romanticism of his movies. Fritz Lang, I feel like, is a, a, a bit more raw mm -hmm. uh, in his storytelling, and You Only Live Once, Stars Henry Fonda and Sylvia Sidney as the lovers on the run. A young so now, now here's the funny thing. So I think we uh, we were all uh, at least people our age, Rosalie, were introduced to Sylvia Sidney because of Beetlejuice. Right. Right. She played uh, the, the old the, lady. Yeah, the receptionist. Well, not the receptionist, but the person that kind of tells them about the afterlife. Right. Um, and so, like you know. I always knew her as this sort of like, you know, wrinkly old lady. But then you start watching classic movies, something like You Only Live Once, and you're like, holy shit, she was a smoke show. Like, she is so sexy, very beautiful. Anyways, um, it, it pair that with Henry Fonda, young Henry Fonda with this like steel blue eyes. That, yes, oh this is God. a black and white movie, but like his steel blue eyes no. are still like piercing right through the screen. <laughs> so, like, these two very beautiful people. Uh, but 
it's such a raw, emotional, uh, sort of gritty movie for 1937. And, you know, it's, it's, I think Fritz Lang or Fritz Lang is like, he's got his hands all over it. And I think, uh, that's, I feel like this, if there is one movie, I think this is the one that Malik might have been like, okay, I'm going to lean on this one a little bit for, mm. for inspiration anyways. So it's, you know, it's a Bonnie and Clyde type of story. Uh, Henry Fonder, Fonder, Fonda plays a character called Eddie Taylor and uh, he starts out in jail and, you know, he's charismatic. All the jail keepers like him, all the prisoners like him and he's saying his goodbyes. He's getting released after however long, finally granted parole. Um, uh, and then he's picked up again and then he ends up having to escape prison. And all along, like he's had this honey on the outside, Sylvia Sidney, she's been waiting for him. They have plans. We're going to get married after you get out. Well, he gets wrapped up in something, get put back in jail, and then he has to escape. And now he's really fucked up. Like he cannot go back because he's not going to get out this time. So they go on the run. And, you know, it's um, she is like Sissy SpaceX character, but I, I think Sylvia Sidney's character who is called uh, Joan in this movie. Joan is completely aware of the situation. She like, she's not in some sort of mid teen catatonic state. She knows exactly what's going on. Now they're not going around killing people. They just want to start a life together, but they, they got to get these cops off the trail. And so, you know, they're camping out and they finally find this sort of uh, uh, vacancy at this house run by uh, a husband and then a wife, the wife played by Margaret Hamilton, of course, from Wizard of Oz, Wicked Witch of the West. And um, news, you know, comes out saying we're searching for these two people. And they're like, you can't stay here. We're not we're not going to host criminals. And so they have to go on the run again. And um, like all along, Sylvia Sidney, um, and, and the clip that that uh, people will have heard that I'm going to put in here is Margaret Hamilton and her husband telling Henry Ford, you got to leave. You can't stay here. And he goes back into the room and and like she he's like, we got to leave. And she's like, oh, calm down. It'll be fine. Like throws her arms around him, like she's all smiles. And she's like, as long as we're together type of attitude. And um, the movie um ends i don't know i don't want to spoil it i didn't think it was going to end the way it ends um it's really it really shocked me and maybe it won't shock you like maybe somebody will watch this and be like yes of course this is how it ends anthony but i was like oh my gosh i can't believe it ended. anyways <laughs> uh really good movie you could stream it on tubi for free right now um but it's, you know, I mean, Fritz Lang, so it's a gorgeous movie. It's raw. It's it's gritty. Uh, but then you have these two very beautiful people in the leads. Great movie. You only live once. Check it out. Awesome. Yeah, I actually own the movie. I haven't watched it. So you just spurred me on to want to put that on very Sweet. soon. Very Sweet. excited. Um, all right, let's um, hear your next one. Yeah, so my next one, The Connective Tissue, is Sissy Spacek because I just think she is phenomenal in this movie. And there was one that I hadn't seen from her 70s run that I knew was notoriously good. And that was Three Women. I wonder what it's like to be twins. Huh? Twins. 
better be weird. Do you think they know which one they are? I'm sure they do. They'd have to, wouldn't they? Maybe they switch back and forth. Now one day, Peggy's Polly. Another day, Polly's Peggy. Who knows? Maybe they're the same one all the time. Can we just talk about something else now? Yeah. What? So I watched Three Women yesterday, and wow, like, She's really good in that movie as well. Um, this is the Robert Altman film, uh, also starring Shelley Duvall and Janice Rule and a number of other folks. But it's actually, there's more in common with Badlands than I would have expected. Um, how to describe this movie? It's not something that kind of is easily summarized because as is probably well known by people that listen to the show, it was inspired by a dream that Robert Altman had. So it doesn't <laughs> completely make sense. It uses dream logic. But essentially, um, the simplest way I can explain it is uh, Sissy Spacek plays this young woman named Pinky Rose, who is kind of very naive. She seems a little sheltered. She's just come to this, I think, somewhere near Palm Springs, California from guess where? Texas, right? I think they had to, they had to use that backstory for a while for Sissy Spacek because right. the accent is so distinct. Um, but yeah, she's just gotten to, to town and she gets a job at this sort of spa for the elderly. And the person that's kind of showing her the ropes is Shelley Duvall's character, Millie. And Millie needs a roommate. Uh, Millie is much more like outgoing and has a lot to say and is constantly flirting with all the like young interns and doctors and they're not necessarily reciprocating, but she seems much more like worldly wise than little Pinky. So the two of them become roommates. Um, Pinky soon starts to get on Millie's nerves because she's not very hip. And she also is secretly reading Millie's diary, which is like uh, kind of problematic. Um, I would not want my roommate to read my diary, especially if I'm using that diary to complain about said roommate. But anyway, <laughs> um, there is an inciting incident, and I'm not going to get into it because I think people need to watch this if they haven't. But there's an inciting incident in which um, the roommates sort of, I'm not going to say trade places, but the identities start to get a little muddled. And the dynamic changes significantly between the two. And then the third woman of the title is played by Janice Rule. She is the pregnant wife of their landlord slash the bartender where they go to drink. And she makes these incredible mural paintings that are super creepy and super beautiful. And they're like on the bottom of the pool and on the side of the bar. And like, they just, it's these weird figures that are sort of serpentine, but they look like two or three women and then one man who's making like horrible faces. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very odd, beautiful movie that the tone is, is very unique. Yeah. And I think it actually would make a really interesting double feature with Badlands, much better than <laughs> Blazing Saddles at least. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. I, 
I was just looking at at Altman. So he's got, I mean, his, his filmography is so extensive. He's so prolific. Um, and like, so I don't know about you, Rosalie, but for me, like it took me a few watches of his movies to be like, okay, I, I kind of get Robert Altman. Now. Yeah. Like he's sort of hard to digest at first. And like, I don't, I don't blame people who are like, yeah, Altman, not for me. Cause like you have to kind of really stick with it uh, mm-hmm. to be like, okay, I kind of get what he's going for here. Right. I think it takes a couple, a couple movies, probably at least three movies to just kind of get in the groove with him. Yeah. And then I think you got to go back and rewatch those movies to be like, okay, now that I kind of get a feel for what he does, you know, I, I have a little bit more of an entry point, but it is, he's one of those ones that I was a little intimidated to start. And I think the first one I watched of his was Gosford Park, which like, that's a parlor, you know, mystery. So that was at least pretty easy to understand what's happening, but it has a ton of characters. But then, you know, you watch like the Katie and Mrs. Miller, which is gorgeous and awesome. And, you know, you see some of his other, you know, the player and all these other things, right? So he's great. Um, and I really want to revisit The Long Goodbye because it's been quite a while since I've seen yeah. that. And I love noir. And I know that that is a movie that I'm going to really love this time. But the first time I watched it, I had no idea what I was getting into. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I get this. Same. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think this movie, it has a, a little bit of his humor, but like not the same kind of true like sardonic humor you would see in his later stuff sure it's more uh about like the human condition i would say than it is like a commentary on you know various social things sure um but yeah it's deeply like psychological and he's talked about persona being in an influence so you know that it's going to get weird oh yeah um but yeah anthony if you haven't seen this you've got to watch it yeah, I will. There's, you know, my favorite, like I said, I've seen was eight, I think, Altman's. My favorite is um, Come Back to the Five and Dine, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. Oh, I haven't um, seen that one. And, like, talk about weird. Like, so, like my Bobby Watch, I, I mean, I've watched it, I don't know, half a dozen times now because I love it. But Bobby watched it with me one time. I wrote about it for uh, an F This Movie column last year. She watched with me. She's like, what the fuck is this? What is going on? And, like, it's very strange. <laughs> Yeah. And that was a period like when Altman was, um, he was sort of, uh, that was his shunned or his self shunning from Hollywood. And so like, he's mm-hmm. adapting, uh, Broadway plays into like weird Broadway plays into TV movies and like theatrical movies and stuff. And so, uh, come back to the five dime is one of those, but yeah, like I, I've never seen the player. I've never seen Nashville. I've never seen three women uh Popeye I've never seen I'll probably never watch Popeye though it's not my thing. it's okay but, but you, you know like god is there's so many Robert Altman movies you're like oh I gotta see that I got holy shit and like you're going down to, like yeah you know on letterbox like seven rows deep you're like Jesus I need to see that one too right yeah <laughs> yeah Nashville's been on my list for quite a long time and it, it's one that I really need to see and maybe this will be the year I finally see it yeah, just got to carve out the nine hours to watch it, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so that's three women. Um, yeah, I have. Have you seen real quick? Have you seen Prime Cut? No. 
Okay, so that's another sissy performance. Like, I think that's her first movie. Okay. And so that's, it's um, Gene Hackman and uh, Lee Marvin. Jesus Lee Christ. Marvin, point blank. Yeah, point blank. I should have said point blank. You would have gotten that. Um, anyways, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's a really, uh, really strange, like, crime movie. Uh, but she is really good in that. Like, you know, it's her first movie. You're like this. She's a star. And she's like, yeah. you know, she's not one of the stars of the movie, but you're like this. She she's got it. This girl's got it. Yeah. So yeah. anyways. Um, OK, so for my last one, it's uh, I just watched it today. I'd noticed that you had seen it. Um, and I didn't know if I was going to have this in there. And it's sort of a stretch. I will say my initial, my first uh, pick was going to be The Getaway with Steve McQueen and Steve Allie McQueen. McGraw. Sure. Um, but, you know, everybody has seen The Getaway. It's a really good movie. I love The Getaway. <laughs> um, oh, you haven't? Oh, it's really... I haven't. I know. Yeah. It's terrible. I it's, you. Uh, you know, talk about charismatic, you know, like King of Cool, right? Steve McQueen. Um, anyways, I'm not doing The Getaway. Um I'm going to do this movie called The Minus Man. I've never done anything violent to anybody. Just the minimum that was necessary. So what brings you down this way? My dad was sick and I was taking care of him mostly. After he passed on, I didn't have any reason to stay any longer. I never make a plan. It just happens. Are you in a good mood? Yeah, I'm happy. Everybody's, though, happy on Saturday. What can only be described as a bizarre incident. Police are now treating the case as a homicide. You don't always choose what you do. Irene. Sometimes what you do chooses you. Toxology tests have determined the source of the poison. No fear, no pain. They just go to sleep. I'm not surprised this country has so much violence. I'm surprised it has so little. Yes! From, Owen Wilson! Yeah, from writer-director Hampton uh, Francher, who wrote... I had no idea. Hampton Francher wrote Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. He wrote The Mighty Quinn uh, with Denzel. Um, and this is based off of a, a Lou McCreary novel. And Owen Wilson. So what are your thoughts on Owen Wilson to start, Rosalie? I love him. Okay. Um, I'm not going to say he can do no wrong, but I give him a lot more leeway than most. Me too. I, you know, I... Uh, I love it when Patrick and Adam do their wow. And yes. I don't I don't know if they I do it too, but I love him and I love that part of him. So right. me wow too. So yeah, I love Owen Wilson. I think he's a terrific writer. I love his partnership with Wes Anderson. Mm -hmm. Um and like he's usually that type of sort of weird, right? Comic guy. Zoolander, mm -hmm. meet the parents, right? That that guy. Sure. That's that's what you think of when you think Owen Wilson. At least that's what I think of. Well, take that Owen Wilson and make him a serial killer. And that's the minus man. And it took me eh, about 20 minutes to be, to be like, do, do I like this movie? I think, <laughs> I think I'll, I think I'll finish this movie yeah. and by, by the end of the movie. I'm like, ah, uh, this might be the best thing I've watched all year. It's really good. And it it's really good. It sneaks up on you because you're right. Like it takes a while to kind of understand what 
what is even happening? Because there's not a ton of dialogue. No. Right. And you just start to see him like play out his pattern. And, you know, like he's very particular and ordered and meticulous. And it, it doesn't give you a ton to go on in terms of like charisma. Um, unlike, you know, Kit in Badlands, but he, there's something about him, man. He's, he's really interesting to watch. Yeah. So th- this is like, it, it's like a proto Dexter. If anyone yeah. watches the series Dexter, right? Cause like Dexter has, uh, his, his adoptive father, right? Ghost dad sort of like right. coaching him through life as a serial killer. And <laughs> Owen Wilson plays this character called Van, um great character name van has these two detectives played by dwight yoakam and dennis haysbert this fucking cast is unbelievable just so amazing and we're saying his rules in it right and and so like they're are they real are they not are they actually like chasing him or has he killed them at this point like they never we never actually meet them they're just sort of in his head when he's alone it's at that's when they show up so anyways van played by owen wilson uh it, it it opens up with him going into this dive bar with john carroll lynch in an uncredited role as the bartender and then cheryl crow just this like washed up burned out like strung out haggy looking uh barfly um and so Owen Wilson picks her up, takes her, you know, they go on a ride. She's like, you want to go get high? And he's like, okay. And like, he has, like, I think Owen Wilson plays his character perfectly. Like he's apathetic. He's dead inside. He doesn't know how to uh, deal with whatever the fuck is going on in his head. And so it just comes out sort of monotone and like, you know, very little personality. So anyways, he drives her and I'm going to spoil this because it's, it's the opening scene. Yeah. It's for 10 minutes. Yeah. And like, so they, they park at this rest stop or at this park or somewhere. And she like takes out. And so she says, you want to get high? I'm like, okay, they're going to go like smoke a doobie or something. Like Mm -hmm. she pulls out a fucking needle and like wraps her arm. Right. Like she's shooting heroin and he's like, Oh, a bear must've knocked that over. And like, you're like, what the fuck is going on? And he gets out of the car and like stands up this trash can and then comes over and he opens up the the glove box and he's got a little flask in there. And she's like, can I have a drink? What is it? And he's like, it's amaretto. And she takes a little nip and then she passes out and you think, oh, okay, like she's high. So, just, yeah. so he throws her over his shoulder and takes her into the bathroom, just like leaves her there and then drives off. And you're like, what the fuck is this? And so, Owen Wilson plays this serial killer who ends up in this little town and he, he rents a room from a couple played by Brian Cox and Mercedes rule. Both of them just the best. Yeah. Mercedes does rule. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And like you're saying, like the dialogue is very sparse, just like Badlands. It's a very patient movie with its dialogue. It just sits with the characters Uh, like Martin Sheen in Badlands, he has this sort of these rules of his life or, you know, like uh, his own whatever his weird principles. Exactly. Owen Wilson Mm -hmm. as Van has the same things, but it's all in his head. He's saying these things. 
And it's really like I couldn't find a clip that like the clip would have been like two seconds long because he just he has just these like little like one liners, he says. And then it's just like silence and it's all show, don't tell. And it's a very beautiful. It's very patient. But yeah, this cast, Owen Wilson, Janine Garofalo plays the quote unquote romantic interest. Um, Owen Wilson kind of takes up residence in this little town and he gets a job as a mail carrier. Janine Garofalo works there. Uh, he's living with Brian Cox and Mercedes Rule. He picks up Cheryl Crow. Dwight Yoakam and Dennis Haysbert are the like ghost detectives. Um, Alex Warren plays this uh, like highway patrol woman who finds him at the beginning and then finds him at the end. And then the ending, yes, it might be a little cheesy, like he gets to a fork in the road, right? And I'm going to spoil this too, because it's not really, a, like nothing happens in this movie. Right. He does kill a few people, right. But like he gets to a fork in the road and he's like, which way should I go? Black. Yeah. And like for me, I fucking love that. Yeah. And that's when I like, it hit me. I was like, oh, um, so far, number one discovery of the year. Nice. I, you know, it just, it, man, it played so well with me. So the first time I saw The Minus Man, and this shows you how long it's been, it was renting from the local video store as many Owen Wilson movies as we could possibly get our hands <laughs> on. And this was not what we were expecting at all, um, but I was also strangely intrigued by it for sure. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely want to go back and watch this one because it's probably been like, oh, I don't know, at least 15, maybe more years. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I'm looking at, there's, you know, uh, my friend Bill rated it two stars. Vinny gave it three, Brad Henderson gave it two and a half. You gave it two and a half. So, uh, star ratings are, you know, subjective, very personal. So I don't know exactly what those mean, but for me, I'm like, oh, five star movie. Uh, it's not a f- yeah. folks. It's not a five star movie, but for me, like it really hit me. Uh, also, I was like, man, I fucking love Owen Wilson. Anyways, I know I kind of wanted to do another role that's like out of the norm for yeah. him because he was really good in this very serious, you know, confined role where he's not. It kind of reminds me of like when Vince Vaughn is not the you know rat bro right because he can also be really effective exactly in a more intense role and serious and you know those two guys kind of get thought of in the same sentence a lot yeah. so i'm doing that sorry no no <laughs> but i think no I, both of them have capabilities beyond yes what we normally yeah do. i completely i 100 agree with you um yeah. okay so rosalie this was so much fun um absolutely love talking with you it's always a highlight of the season for me Thanks, Anthony. It's so kind of you to say, and it's such a pleasure to come on Cult Movies. I'm happy to come back anytime you invite me and um, just love Badlands. If people haven't seen it, I really hope that they'll seek it out. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Where can people find you online? So um, I'm an intermittent Twitter user, even though I tried to give it up, but I, I sort of keep stumbling back. So Rosalie Lewis on Twitter, or you can find me on F This Movie. Um, I was just recently on a podcast talking about The Village, which is a movie that I love, even though most people hate it. Um, Those people are wrong. Those people are wrong. (laughs) Yeah, I'm also on the Blu-ray Boutique podcast, um, which you can follow at Blu-ray Boutique on Twitter. 
And this show, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Cold Movies Pod. Uh, check us out on Patreon. Uh, that's patreon.com backslash cult movies podcast and me anthony king i'm on twitter instagram letterbox at ak donnelly that's a-k-d-o-n-e-l-o-y and uh check me out at fthismovie.com every friday for my uh, uh film journal column and we're back next week with more cult movies let me think who's coming on next week it's going to be oh lexi van dyke james coddington and we're talking about fantasia going animation baby that's right all right rosalie thanks a lot